glad to have you with us here today. And uh, I had done a series where we focused on heaven, and I wanted to wrap that up by teaching this story about the rich man and Lazarus. In some ways, it's probably one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible that deals with heaven and with hell. And so open your hearts and your ears. Let uh, the Holy Spirit apply the Word of God to you this morning as he intends to. Well, this story that Mike just read teaches so many things. But mainly, it teaches the danger of an unrepentant life. Uh, The rich man had everything except for a repentant heart. After he died, he knew that the reason he was in torment was because he did not or had not repented. And from hell, he clearly saw that what his five brothers needed was to repent. And his one request was to send someone back from the dead so that then they would repent of their sins and turn to God. We don't talk a lot about repentance, but we should. Repentance is the hallmark of saved people. And the absence of repentance is the hallmark of the unsaved. And the unvarnished message of this story is that unrepentant people end up in hell. Frederick Godet said, Jesus' aim in the story of the rich man and Lazarus is self-examination in which the heart is broken at the thought of its sins. And this brokenness over your sins impresses on you an entirely new direction for your life. This is the arrow point shot by the hand of Jesus at the conscience of his hearers. The very first demand of Jesus in his public ministry was what? Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of God is here. Jesus knew that repentance was the very foundation of real salvation. And you may say, hey, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by believing or by faith alone in Christ. Well, that's right. But no one will truly put faith in Christ who has not had faith in themselves first thoroughly destroyed. So this story strikes at the problem of putting faith in ourselves, of thinking we are all right or okay or just fine or good. It strikes down the lie that we can go to heaven unrepentant, unhumbled, and unchanged. Specifically, of course, here, Jesus was striking a death blow to the complacency of the self-righteous rich, or the self-righteous rich Pharisees, even more specifically. He was ripping the rug out from underneath them. He was shocking the rich with a story of their future torment and agony. His message to them was, in this story, if you don't repent, your future will be spent in the flames of hell. Earlier in this chapter, just before this story, Jesus had said, no servant can serve two masters. He will be devoted to one 
and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 14 says, The Pharisees, listen to their response to this story. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus said, and they scoffed at him. So this was directed to them. It was directed to their hardness of heart. It was the arrow point shot at their conscience by the words of Jesus in an attempt to break down this calloused, hardened hearts that they had. So their problem was not merely riches, but a proud assumption that they were okay. Uh, they were hardened toward God by their prosperity on earth, and that happens a lot. They didn't worry about God. They weren't troubled about life after death. They certainly felt they had no need of repentance. They were rich. They were comfortable. They were righteous and did not need Jesus, but they did. So Jesus is disturbing their complacency by give them, giving them a terrifying preview of life after death in this story. He is demolishing their false sense of security. And that has to happen. It had to happen to the, for the Pharisees, and it has to happen to you. It has to happen to everyone. Before anyone can be saved, they have to have their own sense of spiritual safety destroyed. No one who is content with themselves, their things, their comfortable situation, their own goodness will come to Christ in a saving way that truly puts faith alone in Christ alone for their salvation. And that is the danger of all men, but especially it is a danger of those who are well off in this life for those whose lives are going pretty well they become complacent and don't see their desperate need of Christ now this story is uh, obviously about the need for the Pharisees to repent but the story also shows the need for all people to repent to have repentant hearts because there is a reckoning with God after death. And that's what this story teaches. There's a reckoning with God for all men after death. There are the flames of torment or the pleasures of paradise. Paul said in Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, God commands all men everywhere to repent, for he has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice through a man he is appointed, which, of course, is Jesus Christ. And just before Jesus left the earth to go back to heaven, he told his disciples, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name, beginning in Jerusalem. That's at Luke 24, 47. So, I say all that to emphasize clearly from Jesus from the Apostle, from the Apostle Paul, from the Scripture, that repentance is a part of the process of salvation. And 
Usually, when people think they are saved, but show no change of life, repentance is the missing ingredient. They've never been taught repentance from the scriptures. A Christian without repentance is not truly a biblical, born-again Christian. Uh, A Christian is someone who has been undone by the law of God, by the commandments of God, and the fear of judgment, and driven into the arms of Christ for safety and relief. A Christian is someone who has been undone by the law of God and the fear of judgment and driven into the arms of Christ for safety and relief. That needed to happen to the Pharisees and it needs to happen to all of us. So this story begins. There was a rich man. This is a story primarily, although it includes Lazarus, and there's some important details in there about Lazarus, This is essentially a story about a rich man. And there's an old saying that some people's purpose in life is to serve as an example to others. And that is certainly this man's purpose in this story. His life is a warning. Uh, He is is what not to be like. Here is what happens, here is what happened to this rich man. Don't let this happen to you, is the thrust of the story. We don't know his name. We only know that he was rich, that he had lots of money. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. Purple dye was the most expensive to make in that day, so only the rich could have purple fabric. So it was it was the color of choice for kings and rich people. So even his clothes, even what he wore every day, let people clearly know that he was rich. It says he feasted sumptuously every day. He lived uh, in luxury. He lived the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Uh, The New American Standard Bible says he was joyously living in splendor every day. He ate the best food. He had the finest, finest things. He was living the dream. Cindy's brother, if you ever ask him how he was doing, he'd say, living the dream. Well, that's what this guy would have said if you ask him how he was doing. Living the dream, man. And I think if you ask him, he would have told you that he was happy. But he was headed for agony in the flames. Rich people often in those days and still today often have a a gate or some large impressive entrance out in front of their home to show their wealth. And this man apparently had one of those. Verse 20 says that at his gate there was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So... This is just to create an incredible uh, image of contrast between what the, how the rich man lived and how Lazarus lived. The rich man had everything. Lazarus had nothing. He laid there. He didn't even have good health. He couldn't walk. He, his body hurt. He didn't have enough to eat. 
Dogs that roamed the streets, licked his sores. I mean, he was truly in a pathetic situation, circumstances. Now, although it's not pointed out in the scripture passage, it seems quite obvious that one evidence of the rich man's unrepentance was his callous indifference to Lazarus's desperate and pitiable situation. In Isaiah 58, the prophet Isaiah said, this is the kind of fasting I want to see in your life, to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. But the rich man didn't take God's word seriously. He didn't take that passage of Scripture seriously. Apparently, he didn't take any part of God's Scripture, the Moses and the prophets, seriously. He was hard, he was cold, and he had no compassion for Lazarus. But the time came when they both died, and the story makes it sound like they maybe died relatively close, close time to one another. Verse 22 and 23, the poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried, and in Hades he found himself in torment. Uh, the word Hades may throw some people. Hades was the place of the dead, uh, but for the unrepentant, it was a place of torment. And obviously, he was in torment. And he said, I am in anguish, or I am in agony in this flame. He was in a place that what we clearly, uh, or he was clearly in a place that we call hell, or what Jesus called hell, or Gehenna, in other places. Uh, it's translated hell in the... Uh, older version of the NIV in the King James Version and several other translations. Well, after death, everything has suddenly changed for these two men. Lazarus is now pictured sitting next to Abraham, the father of the faith. He's enjoying rest and acceptance and comfort. He's comforted. He's enjoying friendship and fellowship at Abraham's side. But the rich man is in hell. He's in torment. He's in agony in the flames. And all the descriptions that are in this uh, scripture, this story, about his, what his experience, are, they're, they're hard to hear. I mean, it's hard to hear about someone saying that they are in agony or in torment or in the flames. But we can't soften those words or ignore them. Jesus presented hell as a place, not only in this story, but in several other places in the Gospels. He presented hell as a place of severe physical and mental uh, suffering and anguish. And he meant for people to know that. Now, before we go on with the rest of the story, there are some important truths that, that I think are especially 
fitting or especially important for modern day uh, believers, Christians, people to know about or to hear. There's some important truths here that Jesus taught in this story that are not the main point of the story, but yet they still reveal some very important information to us that, that we ought to know and believe. And so I'm going to run over those first real quickly, and then we're going to come right back into the story. First, life does not end at death for anybody. We are special people created in the image of God. We're created with eternal souls. We're created with the souls accountable to God with eternal consequences for choices in this life. And the, the unrepentant, people who are just living in calloused, hardened uh, sin, cold and indifferent toward God, they may hope that death, death is the end, uh, but Jesus said, no, it's not. It's not the end for anybody. Secondly, Jesus taught not only here, but very clearly here, that there are two destinations for people after death, heaven and hell. There is the Father's kingdom or weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25. There's either torment or glory. John Lennon wrote the song Imagine. I'm sure probably most everybody here knows that. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. If you're a Christian, please do not sing that song. That song calls Jesus a liar. Jesus said, there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a place of torment, there is a place of glory. Third, Jesus destroys the teaching which is growing more and more popular, even within what we would call the evangelical church. Jesus destroys the teaching of universal salvation or the belief that all people end up in heaven anyway. A.W. Tozier said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It's, a, it's, a, it's not only a lie, it's a deadly lie. Fourth, Jesus taught, now this point is going to help some of you, some of you are not even going to know what I'm talking about. But some people ask me about this when we taught through Revelation, so I'm going to address it here. Jesus taught the immediacy of pleasure or agony after death. I mean, when we were talking about heaven, we talked about kind of intermediate heaven, uh, and the future heaven is really going to be a new heaven and a new earth where we're going to live with, with God on this earth in resurrected bodies. So, but I want to make clear that Jesus taught the immediacy of pleasure or agony after death. The great white throne judgment in the lake of fire is still out in the future uh, uh, based on the, on the book of Revelation. But the rich man's agony was experienced right then, right upon death. In the same way for believers, the new heaven, the, the, the resurrection of our bodies, the new heaven and the new earth is still out in the future but the pleasure of being with God is immediate upon death. And that's clearly taught in the scriptures. Jesus said to the thief in the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said, 
To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're immediately present with the Lord. I love what J.C. Ryle said on this from this story of the rich man and Lazarus. He said, all who fall asleep in Jesus are in good keeping. They are not houseless, homeless wanderers between the hour of death and the day of resurrection. They are at rest in the midst of friends. And best of all, Paul tells us, they are with Christ. Philippians 1.23. Fifth important teaching from this passage. The after-death experiences of the rich man and Lazarus dramatically show us that the truly blessed life is only the life that will experience eternal pleasures. In other words, the truly blessed life is the life that will be blessed eternally. So who is the blessed person in this story? Well, on the surface, it might seem like the rich man, but it's not. Ultimately, the blessed person in this story is Lazarus. He's the one that ends up at Abraham's side. He's the one that's comforted for all eternity in the presence of the Lord. So, we tend to evaluate our lives, our worth, everything about us, even whether we're blessed by not, blessed by God or not, we tend to evaluate all those things strictly by our present circumstances in this life. And this story absolutely shatters that kind of thinking. You cannot think rightly about life without taking eternity in view. If you are right with God, if you have repented of your sins, if you've come to Christ to save you, you are the blessed person, not Bill Gates, not Elon Musk, because you have the right to the tree of life, Jesus said in Revelation. You have the right to enter the gates of the New Jerusalem. Even if you're suffering and eating scraps and in terrible circumstances in this life. It is always better to be on God's side even if your experience in this world is really, really, really hard. All right. Then, let's go back to the storyline. The rich man, he's in torment, in agony. Lazarus, he's in what we would call heaven. He's at Abra or Abraham's side. He's comforted. He's, he's in a place of honor. So, the rich man now, he's keenly aware. After he's died, he's keenly aware of his own torment. And he's also keenly aware of the pleasures of heaven that he has missed. And so he asks that Lazarus could come from heaven and bring him some relief. Verse 24, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Amazingly, Jesus tells us here something about the thoughts and feelings of those in hell. Uh, the rich man is desperate for relief. He's filled with regret and agony. He asks for water to cool his tongue. He finds hell a place of torment. But Abraham says, I can't do that, and basically gives a couple of reasons. 
But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. So it seems, first of all, that Abraham turns down his request because there is, there is justice about the way things have turned out. The rich man was cruel and heartless in his neglect of Lazarus and that was a symptom of his unrepentant heart and now that sin is being justly dealt with. Lazarus on the other hand suffered years of pain and hunger and humiliation and mistreatment but now he has pleasure, peace and honor and as Cindy's friend, my good friend too, Leonard Ravenhill said God does not pay all his dues in this life. Jesus said the same thing. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. The day of judgment is going to change the status, the circumstances, the experiences of lots of people. And just for example, you know, we think very highly of the Apostle Paul today. We, we would say that, you know, we hold, we hold the Apostle Paul and his teaching, we hold him in honor. But but in his lifetime, Paul said, we are treated like the world's garbage. We're like everybody's trash right up to this present moment. Some translations say we're the, we are treated like the scum of the earth. That was, his, that was his experience in this life. I mean, different, but in a way kind of like Lazarus. But now he is honored in heaven. You can come in last, okay, hear, hear me, kids especially. You can come in last in the world's game and yet be under the supreme blessing of God and be greatly loved by God and that will be fully revealed someday in heaven. Everybody's going to see that you're God's special daughter or son. One other thing that I think at this point in the story we, we have to clear up. Again, it's not the main part of the, part of the story, but it's something that people get really confused about from this story. Some people actually do teach that uh, poverty qualifies people for heaven. In other words, poor people go to heaven and rich or wealth, riches or wealth disqualify that. Well, Jesus was not teaching that poverty is a way to get to heaven or that all rich people go to hell. If that were true, then Lazarus would not be sent to the side of Abraham, the richest man in all of Israel. So that is not the point. And we've already told you what the point is, and we're going to see it again and really drive it home here as we get to the end of the passage because the end of the passage really clarifies in a powerful way what we're supposed to get out of this. But there's another reason that his request is denied, verse 26. And besides this, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Abraham said people from heaven can't go to hell. People from hell cannot cross over into heaven. Clearly teaching that our Eternal experience is fixed by choices made in this life and nothing can be done to change them later. And that is why all of Scripture, 
including the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of the prophets, the preaching of the apostles, all the teaching of Scripture emphasizes the urgency to respond to God now. Today is a day of salvation. There's nothing in Scripture to give the hope of, uh, of a second chance. Now, when the rich man realizes any change in his misery is impossible, he makes another request in verse 27 and 28. Then, well, like, okay, if that doesn't work, then... I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He, he knows that his five brothers are headed for hell just like him. And he wants Lazarus to go and appear to them and shake them up and get them to repent. Verse 29, but Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, let them, let them respond to the information that God has already given them in the Old Testament scriptures. Moses and the prophets, and that basically was a reference in those days to, to the entire Old Testament scriptures. Moses especially refers to the law to the books of the law, to God's commandments, God's requirements. They have Moses. Romans 3.20 says, through the law, or we could say through Moses, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The the, the apostles' teaching in the New Testament is that that's the primary uh, role of, of the law, is to make us conscious of our sins. Well, if the Pharisees and, and, and the rich man and his five brothers, they weren't paying attention, any attention to the law. So they didn't have this proper consciousness of their own sins. But Abraham essentially was saying the law of Moses is sufficient to break a person's self-righteousness and to humble them before God. They have the prophets. I don't know if you've spent much time reading the prophets. I think, I think the prophets are the hardest section of all the Bible to understand. Uh, I'm talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, Micah, Nahum, all of that. But if you've read the prophets, what did the prophets do? They warned Israel. They warned the people of Israel. They called them to repentance. I don't know how there could be any more powerful warnings in all of Scripture than you find in the prophets. But they also pointed to a coming Savior and directed people and, and people that, were, that searched the Scriptures. They were, they were aware that the prophets spoke of this coming salvation, a coming Messiah, a coming, a coming Savior. So basically, not to get into that too much, but, but Abraham was telling the rich man that there's enough in Moses and the prophets to bring, to bring, you, bring the five brothers to repentance. He was basically saying God's, Scripture is God's way of bringing sinners to repentance. Not the only way, but th- this is the main way that God brings, brings people to repentance is through the hearing and the preaching and the proclaiming of God's own message, God's own word. But the rich man said in verse 30, No, no, Father Abraham, he, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. All right, he, he protests 
against Abraham saying, let the scriptures bring them to repentance. In hell, he understands, maybe for the first time, but he understands clearly that what his five brothers needed was repentance. The question was, what would it take to get them to repent? What would make them repent? Abraham has one view, and the rich man says, no, that won't work. I've got a better idea. He knew his brothers already had the Old Testament scriptures, and he knew they ignored them. And he knows that it is their indifference and unrepentance in the face of Moses and the prophets or in the face of the law and the prophets that exposes his five brothers to future agony and torment just like him. But he thinks, it, you know, it's, it's his idea, but he thinks they would listen if someone, uh, to someone who came back from death. So, he urges Abraham to try something else. They need more than the scripture, essentially is what he's saying. But Abraham said to him, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead or even if someone rises from the dead. That is the punchline of the story. And it is meant to get at the heart of the Pharisees' resistance to Jesus. Their failure to believe in him is not due to a lack of evidence, but due to a hardened heart. And what is repentance? Repentance is to change, specifically to change your heart. Repentance is a change of heart, and that is what the Pharisees need, not more evidence. They need a change of heart. The same hardness of heart that won't respond to the Scripture won't respond to a miracle either, Jesus was soon going to rise from the dead and the Pharisees, for the most part, still would not believe. So Jesus exposes the false idea that people need, just need more evidence in order to get saved. They just need more evidence to repent and believe in order to, uh, in other words, to use the language in this scripture. So people, people don't turn to God because of, because of an inner resistance to God's message and God's messengers. And if they do not believe based on what God has already given them, more evidence will not change that. Uh, there's a famous atheist from a long time ago. He actually wrote in the late 1800s, uh, Bertrand, Bertrand Russell. He wrote a book. I read it when I was in college because I was just kind of into figuring out what people were thinking and if Christianity really had solid evidence behind it and so forth. And he wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And I read that when I was up at Iowa State. And uh, Bertrand Russell made a, made a pretty well-known statement. A lot of people have copied it. But he said, if God appeared to me after death and demanded to know why I failed to believe him, I would say, not enough evidence. God, you didn't give me enough evidence. And he felt that that would exonerate him at the judgment, the great white throne judgment. Well, and, and many atheists today have repeated that same, same thing. 
But Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Somewhere in everybody's heart and soul, there's, there's like, a, like a stamp on their heart that says, made by God. And everything in the world cries out, made by God. And so Paul, Paul says it's not lack of evidence, but suppression of evidence that God has already given that will bring God's wrath on people. Someone put it this way, evidence is not the problem, we are. And a big reason for choosing to say there's not enough evidence, a big reason for choosing unbelief in the face of evidence that there is, is because belief in Jesus has consequences. Belief in Jesus impacts your life and your choices and your priorities and what you do in life. And most people or many people don't want their life to be impacted by Jesus. It was just a simple matter of leaving the evidence and that's it. It'd be one thing, but to believe in Jesus requires turning from our sins and turning to follow him. Josh talked about this last, last week. He bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay, well, believing in Jesus means that you sign up for that process. And a lot of people don't want to sign up for that process. They want to remain in their lifestyle, in their sins. Well, what do we take away from this story? And I think there's several things that I'm going to go over here uh, briefly. They're all really kind of related, but here, here's what I think we need to take away from this. Here's what the Spirit of God impressed upon me. Perhaps the most important message is just the tremendous seriousness of life. And I am a firm believer that Christians should rejoice, that Christians should have fun, uh, all of that. But at, at the core, life is serious business. And I don't know too many other stories in the Bible other than this one that make that, that, make that more clear. I mean, all the Bible does, the whole story of the Bible. But the rich man in Lazarus makes it very clear that life is serious business. You can imagine that there are no eternal consequences, uh, but the Bible says there are. And again, the outcomes are glory and honor or God's anger and wrath. And if there is just one man or woman either here this morning or that may listen to this message, either be listening right now or some other time in the future online, if there's just one man or woman or one boy or girl here who has not knowingly repented of their sins and turned to Christ to save them, then this message 
I pray, would move you to do that. I got down on my knees and received Christ into my heart after hearing a Sunday evening message by our pastor about hell. And I know a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't receive Christ just to flee from hell. And I I get that. Uh, Certainly not the only reason to turn to Christ. But you know what? It is a pretty big one. To stay out of hell is a pretty good thing. It's a pretty good reason. One of them, not the only thing. I mean, there's all kinds of things. The love of God draws us. Our thirst, inner thirsts are satisfied. I mean, there's just all kinds of reasons to turn to, turn, turn to Jesus. Uh, but stay out of hell is, is a big one. Third, make, a t- make paying attention to the scriptures a big deal in your life. I mean, that's the, that's the problem. That's a fundamental problem going on here. The Pharisees, uh, the rich man, the five brothers, what was the common denominator of all of them? They didn't pay attention to the scriptures. They didn't take the scriptures to heart. They didn't let the word of God do its work in bringing them to repentance and faith in Jesus. So, you know, if you're here this morning, and I don't, you know, I don't care what kind of name you put on where you're, where you're at in your Christian walk, but if you're here and going through life, and, and you know that you are really living in spiritual complacency and generally disregarding the Bible, let this story shake you and drop you to your knees in repentance and begin to take God's word seriously like never before. Another application. Flee from self-righteousness. I mean, the, this is a problem of, of the rich man. is a problem of the Pharisees. They, they, they thought they're, they're fine. They're okay. They're good. They're well off. Don't, don't bother me. Don't, you know, don't disturb me. I'm okay. Um, flee from self-righteousness. Wow, self-righteousness does not look good on a Christian. I mean, we're, we are supposed to be humbled before God uh, by our sin and by God's holiness and deeply grateful to Christ for saving us. That's the way we're supposed to live and walk, not in any kind of self-righteousness. And I've seen church people who just don't seem to, be, don't seem to have their hearts broken by their own sin and neediness. Their own life, their own home may be a disaster, and yet they aren't shook up about it at all. They might be aware of the sins of others, but they just don't seem very aware of their own neediness before God. And that shouldn't be. That should not be. Next. Don't don't wait for God to shock you. Don't wait for something spectacular to happen to get you on track with God. Um, Some people are are waiting for for a Lazarus to appear in order to start taking God seriously. Some people are waiting for something mystical, surprising, supernatural to get them on track spiritually. Uh, Don't wait for someone to come back from the dead to wake you up spiritually. Don't wait 
for someone to come to you with a spectacular prophetic message. God may do that. He may give you a sign, but he's not obligated to. And the point of this passage is that he has already revealed himself in the scriptures and we are to respond to what we have. So respond to the scripture that you hear this morning. Respond to this story. Take, take the scripture as God's wake-up call. And then the very last thing, and this is not directly the point of this story at all, but how can we who know Christ do anything but humbly rejoice that Christ has saved us from hell. Given the realities of hell and the description here in this story of torment and agony, Christians should overflow with gratitude that as, as Paul, the Apostle Paul said, we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation and heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, that ought to make you happy. That ought to cause you to rejoice. That ought to, it, there's, it's a still a sober, there's still a soberness about this. There's still a seriousness about it. But yet, as Paul said in Colossians, we should overflow with gratitude because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. All right, may the words of Jesus have their intended effect in every single life here today and every single person who might be listening as well. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray.